This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. by the Ohio Writing Project. I'm Noah Waspy and I'm joined by Ohio Writing Project co-director Beth Reimer. Beth, how's it going? Hey Noah, it's actually going really great. Awesome, awesome. So what's great in your world? Geez Noah, we just finished a um, four-week teaching of writing workshop all remotely and you know um, we had all the things that we were worried about and It just turned out amazing being in a space with all of those K-12 teachers just trying to figure it out together about writing and reading and teaching and learning remotely. It was inspiring. Yeah, I got to see some of the work that the four-weekers were doing, um, and I got to join a little bit. Thanks for inviting me, by the way. And I just, I shouldn't have been surprised because OWP has been doing hybrid classes and online classes for so long. This is nothing new for OWP, but I was still blown away by how smoothly everything was and how organized and how inspiring it still managed to be in spite of the pandemic situation. Yeah, thank you. You know, teachers are amazing, right? And when you gather teachers together in the same space, just all the smartness comes right out, right? Yeah. And I think you're also, I didn't, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot. This wasn't stuff that we talked about before uh, recording this, but uh, (laughs) you also finished up the most recent uh, Masters of Arts in Teaching research cohort. And congratulations on another one. Um, It was so successful. I I got to see some of those presentations because they're recorded and oh my goodness, what an amazing and smart group of people. Right? Like uh, maybe wow is yeah. the right response. Yeah, we had 24 teachers present their Masters of Arts in Teaching research work that they worked on in their classrooms for a year. And we ended up, they all recorded their work as like a defense of their work in a presentation. And then we all met together with real time question and answers. And I think it reaffirmed two things for me. One was that, again, Ohio Writing Project teachers and the work they do is in incredible. It's passionate. It's thoughtful. It's smart. It's in it for the students and the learning. And then two, it affirms the fact that we can do this. We can do it. It was one more step in thinking about remote learning and teaching is different, right? And it doesn't replace exactly face-to-face, but it can still be good. I mean, really good. And even to the place where we probably will keep some of the same things at a time when we can go back face-to-face because there were some really important milestones that happened, thinking about how do we share knowledge across time and space. That just can't happen when we're in a classroom with the door closed. Absolutely. Like, I, that's something I was telling another colleague is, you know, one thing that's going to happen is everyone who wasn't already smart with ed tech is going to be really smart by the time this is over. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. 
like, like awesome. a little puddle of yeah when like a little drop and then everybody is just going to keep like learning from each other like yeah. that kind of whole ripple thing so Blend, yeah. blended learning so anyway, will no longer be a progressive thing it'll be right. something that everybody does right, right right so that's why summer has been great actually absolutely that's wonderful all right so are you ready for a poem absolutely all always right. ready for a poem today i have water by rudy francisco when i was six years old my brother and my cousins tried to teach me how to swim. They did this by throwing me into a pool. Immediately, my arms became two skinny, brown, flailing distress signals. I think I heard my brother say, if he dies, I'm going to be in so much trouble. I remember them pulling me from the jaws of the liquid beast before it could devour me whole. That was the day I almost lost my life. To anyone brave enough to love me, do you know the human body is approximately 6% water? When I walk into a room full of people, all I see is ocean. Isn't that insane? Oh my gosh, that is so good. You know, it, it went to a place I wasn't ready for, which is why it's so good, that shift at the end. Yeah. I did write down throwing me into a pool because it was resonating with maybe the way that a lot of us are feeling right now or maybe yeah. felt in the spring. And then... Um, that whole idea, right? Like I, we were thrown in and now we start to realize, wait, it's actually part of us. This is who we are now. And that when we look into our world, something that once was feeling dangerous is actually who we are. So yeah, that was incredible. I know that I love, and this is a poem I use as a mentor text with my students during uh, online teaching um, because it's a, a great example of one of those. I love when poems tell this story. And then there's this shift at the end where they show you what the story means. It's a really mm -hmm. cool way. Like we talk about ending using strong endings, but we don't always talk about how. And this is one of those hows. That's so great. And I just want to name um, aloud, since we're going ahead and taking a little longer on our introduction, that this moment reminds me of Holly Trigg, who was one of our very first elementary advisors for the Ohio Writing Project Masters of Arts and Teaching Program. And she had a real belief her elementary students deserved quality poetry all the time. That we should put quality poems and smart poems in front of them to see and to hear and enjoy and that um, they deserved it. And this reminds me of that, right? And the fact that you just said you use this poem that as adults, we just like could really dig and get into. Yeah. So to your elementary students, right? And it's a reminder that every age deserves quality words. Yeah. And, you know, contemporary poetry. It's not just about, you know, since we're interviewing Julia Torres today, and she's one of the leaders of the Disrupt and founders of the Disrupt Text Movement. With our poetry, we can't just be sharing, you know, Lord Byron in the classic <laughs> white guys, we have to share a diverse array of voices and uh, modern voices that speak to the people that are living during this time. Right. So I was right. excited to share that poem. I just love that poem. All right. So let's get into what's coming up at Ohio Writing Project. Beth, what's coming up? Well, thanks, Noah. So lots of great things are happening, but I think I want to highlight three things. A reminder in these kind of like hot summer days that you can find writing inspiration at our Instagram at OWPMU. And there there's writing prompts to keep you kind of just getting your pencil moving across your page in these summer days. And the, our Twitter, OWP 
MU is the exact same Twitter handle and you can find conversations there. And then speaking of conversations, the Ohio Writing Project every Sunday at three o'clock is holding free conversations about two of the key and integral and important and necessary things that are going on in the world today with our classrooms. This idea of remote teaching and learning and anti-racist pedagogy and curriculum and thinking about what kind of action and work we need to do to change our classrooms. So back and forth, we take turns back and forth between those two conversations every Sunday at three o'clock and you can get information for that or get the RSVP link by just emailing the Ohio Writing Project at miamioh.edu. And then third, we are also uh, getting ready uh, to launch our remote professional development for schools. So the Ohio Writing Project does professional development out in schools all the time, K-12, all kinds of literacy. But with today's kind of thinking, we know one of the supports that we want to provide is to help teachers do the really good work that they've always done with workshop or anything with reading and writing instruction from assessment to building community to digital notebooks to all of the things. But what does that look like remotely? And we can actually support schools and teachers remotely ourselves and then in terms of them changing their practice and pedagogy to remote learning. So if you're interested in that, just email again, the Ohio Writing Project, and we'll get back to you because we can help. Absolutely, Ohio Writing Project can help. All right, so let's get to the interview. But before we do, I just wanna say, um, Listeners, please stick around after the interview for a writing opportunity from movingwriters.org. I'll be telling you all about it after the interview. All right, so with no further ado, I would like to introduce, oh, Beth, you have something else Wait, to say? Wait, yeah, I do all have right, something else. All right, so with else, a little bit of further ado then. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> much ado, much ado. Much ado about so something. Yeah, because I just wanted to, Noah, I was so excited that you're going to be, uh, we're talking with Julia today, and the the reason why is because of the all the emotions that have been going on this summer. Like, there's just been an, a range of emotions from spring to summer, right, and all real and justified and valuable anxiety, anger, fear, injustice, worry. I mean, these are real, right, and justified and valuable and it started making me really think about how I was feeling right now with all of this range of emotions and it started making me think you know what like these emotions are strong and cannot and should not be wasted what that means is that sometimes we are um, really content in what's going on and sometimes contentness leads to complacency and the the work that's going on around remote teaching and anti-racist pedagogies and practices gives us a place that emotions to go for action, right? And so I actually am feeling really optimistic and possibilities is a word that keeps coming to mind because I'm thinking we should leverage these emotions and right now to really think about how to teach well remotely. And today's conversation, how we can, with our understanding and our like really like a more than one and two of us in a school questioning our practices to disrupt texts that we can engage in looking at our curriculum closely and what students do and don't read and 
it just feels like in this moment in time, it is absolutely perfect. So I just wanted to kind of say that out loud. I'm glad you said that because my feeling right now is probably something that a lot of teachers feel too, which would be overwhelmed. Yeah. Overwhelmed by all the stuff that you have to prepare for that you've never had to prepare for before. Um, And and a lot of times we're over, and in many cases, we're overwhelmed with not knowing what we're preparing for. And the thing that, you know, we were talking about before this was, um, we have, I just want, I, I have to remind myself of this. We really don't have anything to lose. This is the perfect time to experiment, the perfect time to try something new, the perfect time that now more than ever to disrupt the texts that we're teaching to grow as professionals through PD because no one is expecting teachers to do well in whatever online or in-person situation is going to be happening. And when nobody expects you to do well, you're playing with house money. This is the perfect time to experiment, to try these things. So I'm just going to keep reminding myself every time I start to feel overwhelmed. And I hope that helps other people too. All right. Now with no further ado. Okay. I think you're right. No further ado. (laughs) All right. With no more further ado, I want to introduce our amazing guest today. She is a Heinemann Fellow. She is an English teacher and librarian outside of Denver, Colorado, and she's one of the founders and leaders of the Disrupt Texts movement. I am so excited for everyone to get to hear this, our interview with Julia Torres. Thanks for having me here. Um, I'm glad to have the opportunity, as always, for folks to hear a little bit more about the work. So let's jump right in. Yeah, let's jump in. So Disrupt Texts, it's become such a massive movement in our profession. And, you know, when the four of you started, I guess it started with the Twitter chat. Did you have any idea that it would grow into the movement it's become? I mean, there's a column in NCTE. People across the country are doing this work in their districts and schools. Um, Disrupt Text is a highly sought out um, set of professional development presentations. Um, did you have any idea? Did the four of you have any idea that it would grow into what it's become? No, I can't say that we did. I think that our first impetus, and I can't speak for everybody in the group because they're not here, right? Yeah, sure. I want to make sure that I call out the work of Lorena Germán in Austin, Texas, which is powerful in its own right. I want to call out Trisha Abarvia, who's doing phenomenal work outside of um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I want to call out Dr. Kim Parker, who is also doing phenomenal work throughout the country, but also in Boston, Mass. Um, We admire one another greatly. And the work that we have come together to do has been powerful, but we've also continued to do work on our own individually. And I can say that that was always the case. We were lining up our goals, but we always hoped to find solidarity with others who thought like us because we thought like each other, you know? And then sooner or later, it became a massive group of folks who not only saw like us, but then additionally people who wanted to see like us and Mm -hmm. then people who wanted to understand what all the fuss was about and then people who didn't like what their district was doing and then people who saw the curricular violence that was going on. So there are many people who find their ways to disrupt texts independently. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been it's been an interesting journey because not everybody has come to the work in the same way. Sure, sure. So 
with your personal journey, how did you begin this journey into what would eventually become your involvement with the Disrupt Texts movement? I would say that I was teaching AP English Literature and Language, and I was given the task of teaching the class to students that, in my opinion, were not prepared for it. Um, and I say that they weren't prepared for it because my daughter goes to a school and she's in a school district where they actually start preparing students for the AP test in about sixth grade. She doesn't know that. She didn't know that, but I knew that as her mom and as an English teacher by seeing the types of things that she was reading and the types of work she was doing and the types of writing she was doing. So the students that I would receive in Montbello who were placed in my AP classes were put there to increase enrollment numbers and so that it would show on the school performance framework, which is a way of evaluating how effective a school is. And then that contributes to the district overall performance. How many students do you have enrolled in AP classes? And then of those, how many pass? So it was always gonna be a challenge, but my first goal has always been to make sure that the experience in my class is an enjoyable one because I know that there's so many classes that students go to where it feels like jail and it's traumatizing. So I didn't want to do that to them. So my class, my AP English Lit and Lang class became a place where we had to depart from the list of AP suggested texts and read books that students would feel gravitated towards. And it just so happened that a lot of those were young adult literature. And it just so happens that there is some young adult literature out there right now that is phenomenally well written. I'll call out Jackie Woodson. I'll call out um, Nikki Grimes. I'll call out Jason Reynolds. I'll call out Elizabeth Acevedo. And I'll call out Tiffany Jackson. I think that there's a lot out there right now that gives our students the chance to develop their writing skills while enjoying powerful storytelling. So it's not like we have to choose one or the other. And I think that for the longest time, that's what I was taught as an AP teacher is this is just the stuff the students have to slog through in order to be considered ready for the AP test. Very few people tell you that that question number three, or it used to be number three, on the AP Lit test allows students to write about any text they've read. They don't have to pick from a list. Um, so, you know, it was totally fair game for me to teach poetic strategy and poetic form and um, line spacing using Long Way Down from Jason Reynolds. Um, and I had to use some, you know, I chose an essay from um, Hanif Abdurraqib and I chose um, Eve Ewing's book of like creative poetry that a lot of folks would never have thought to bring into an AP class, but I did that because that's what my students needed and that's what they responded to. And that's what I would have wanted if I had been in their seat. And, you know, we turn off so many kids, we destroy a kid's love of reading the older they get. And I know that you've talked about this a lot, especially with respect to um, literary lineages. Can you talk a little bit about that and reclaim and how you help kids reclaim their reading identities? Sure. The, the idea of literary lineages doesn't originate with me. That language or terminology came from Alfred Tatum, and it's also brought up in Goldie Muhammad's new book, um, Cultivating Genius, which is phenomenal. And I can tell you that what's so great about the idea of reclaiming a literary lineage is that we do have more own voices texts available now than we did when I was in school. 
So when I was in school, my literary lineage was a lot of books about animals. And at least the official literary lineage was a lot of Shakespeare, Waiting for Godot. You know, those are things that I was told I had to read, or excerpts at least, in order to be considered a literate person. In my own time, I read a lot of Piers Anthony. I read some Anne McCaffrey. I read some, um, some Octavia Butler. I wish that I had known about James Baldwin when I was a teenager, because that would have changed the whole trajectory of my, my, you know, education. But I didn't until I was much older. I didn't know about Zora Neale Hurston until I was much older. I didn't know about Toni Morrison until I took an African-American lit class in, um, in college. So, you know, I, I just think that we wait too long or give the token, you know, text to our students. And so I can say that the idea of literary lineages is about injecting stories from the margins or what used to be from the margins so much earlier in our students' development and helping them see themselves reflected in books, whether they be um, a non-binary or non-gender conforming person of color or uh, you know, person who identifies as white, het, cis, gendered male, but needs to learn about other views of the world. Because I think for the longest time, for too long, you walk through that National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and you see every single leader of this country as a white male. And then you really start to understand, with the exception of one, right? Then you really start to understand how deeply ingrained the patriarchy is and white hetero male normativity and everyone else is considered to be some aberration and that's how i grew up and that's how a lot of us grow up in school so i think the movement to disrupt text and my personal stake in it was all about dismantling that so digging into this it's it let's go into some of the nuts and bolts maybe um, I read in a KQED article, which I recommend everyone check out, and I'll probably link it in this episode's description. Um, four pillars undermine, not undermine, underpin the disrupt text movement. Um, examining our own biases, center black indigenous and voices of color in literature, apply critical literary lenses to our teaching practices and work in community with other people, especially those in the DIPOC communities. And you made a really interesting point that I was hoping you could elaborate on here. You said that a lot of folks tend to skip over pillar number one, and ex which is examining our own biases before jumping into diversifying the texts that are in our collections. Um, can you talk a little bit about why this first step is so important? I think that we are slowly moving, well, first of all, over 80% of all educators in American public schools identify as white. Um, the student population is growing, but very soon it's going to be the opposite, where closer to 70, 65, 70% of students identify as mixed race or not white. So one of the things that we're facing is a teaching population that doesn't look like our students. Part of the reason for that is that a lot of our, our students have a traumatic experience in school, our BIPOC 
students have a traumatic experience in school. So why would they then want to continue and do that to someone else? Um, I have spoken with students who say, why would I want to leave college after I've finally graduated and go straight into an unpaid internship? I need to start making money because of the idea of intergenerational wealth and how communities of color are strategically and over his history, we have been stripped of our wealth over and over and over again. So, you know, a lot of folks don't understand the historical or current need for the internal bias introspection, the anti-bias work. And it is my belief and all of our beliefs, I, I will say that we're united in this. I don't, again, want to speak for any of the other ladies, but I can say that we are united in the understanding that that anti-bias work is integral to this. You have to interrogate your own bias. Otherwise, you will not understand why you put books like The Crucible and um, The Scarlet Letter or um, Waiting for Godot so high on the list of works that students just have to know in order to be considered these educated literate people. And I find it really coincidental, of course, if there are white male educators listening to this, please know it hasn't escaped my notice that folks will put specifically white male people in the canon because that's the area where you are most likely to experience expertise and yeah. be seen as the keeper of the knowledge. So, you know, elevating someone else's funds of knowledge or someone else's cultural capital is not a position that is comfortable for a lot of white people and for a lot of white males. And that's something that I'm gradually seeing start to change, which is really exciting and awesome and hopeful. Um, but I also feel like in the United States, particularly, there's this strange melee of emotions that go along with introspection. And as soon as someone starts to feel um, threatened or guilty or sad or angry or any of those emotions, then they don't want to continue working on it. And I don't have the luxury of not talking about race. It's been a part of my life from day one. So I remember being a very little girl and asking my mom why everybody got out of the pool when I did. I was in Texas. And so those are the types of things that like, I don't have the privilege to just ignore. And I'm also noticing another trend, which is the fetishization. And I always struggle with that. I am trilingual, <laughs> so pardon me. But the fetishization of like the pain that you feel when you read something like White Fragility. I still recommend that book because like all books on anti-racism or race, I don't think any of them are wholly good or wholly bad. There are good things about them and things that I wish were different. But I would say that, you know, if people are all in this place right now where they want to do what, um, what was that that monks did? They wore the hair suit. You know, yeah. they just want to wear the hair suit of whiteness. <laughs> okay, that's great. But what I need is for folks to work on themselves so that they can notice the thought patterns and behaviors and speech that comes out of their mouth that is a part of the oppressive structures that keep our students feeling marginalized, erased, oppressed, whatever. I'm not really concerned with people wallowing in guilt. I want actions, words, policies, procedures. I want all of that stuff to change. And it also seems like 
it's really nuanced work. It's more like once you realize that you want to change and start teaching differently, teaching um, in a way that disrupts texts, it's more than just finding books where there's a person of color on the cover of the book. And I know that you've talked a lot about this. Um, what are some things that you want more teachers and librarians to think about when they're building out their libraries? I'd like for folks to think about making sure that the, the own voices texts are given first priority, front and center, purchased in class sets. So yes, it is possible to do research and then write from a perspective that's not your own. But I also think that it's really important to elevate the folks who are writing from their own perspective because that, or, or one that they're adjacent to, because that's not easy to do. It's, it's so hard to beat through the barriers in the publishing industry to even get published in the first place. So folks need to understand that to get published and to get your book in front of teachers. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into that. So recognizing and respecting that is really important. I also think that it's really important for folks to um, remember what it's like to be a student, if you can. Though we are operating in a very different atmosphere from when our students, when we were students ourselves, um, it doesn't feel good to be in a space where you're continually told you need to be different, you don't know enough, you know, the world's gonna be different. I'm preparing you for the future. These are all promises that we don't know are true. So I would like for folks, when we are thinking about own voices and when we are thinking about books that we bring into the classroom, to think of it as an experience that you wanna share with the student and to protect the emotional safety of your students from marginalized populations. Because if they are the only in a room full of white students, you can guarantee there's some level of discomfort that they're experiencing. They may not express that to you, but you need to acknowledge that and commit to learning what it would mean to create an emotionally safe space for them and not tokenizing them. And then I think it's also important not to do things like think that all black, black people are monolithic. So the black experience can be represented by five books about urban East Coast life for a black person. Like there are lots of black folks living in the West, such as myself. There are lots of black folks who live in rural areas. So, and then the same thing goes for the Latinx diaspora. The same thing goes for the Asian diaspora. Um, and I think it's really important to like know your statistics, know that Filipino Americans are like the third largest immigrant group in the United States, but also very erased, marginalized. And I just learned that about that from the author of Patron Saints of Nothing a couple of days ago. So I just want folks to really um, spend some time doing the introspective work before you jump out into being the leader of a movement. Because right now and several years ago, I saw folks who are like, I am the wokest person out here and I am gonna be the one that is going to be out here just waking up other people when they were not woke themselves. And I hate the word woke because it's a process of awakening, right? Brendan, Kylie, and I just talked about that um, a few days ago. It's the process of awakening. If you refer to yourself as woke, the moment that you think you've got it all down and you're ready to start teaching other people is when you will realize that you're at the beginning of your journey. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's huge. Um, and it uh, also like, I wanna point out to people listening that this work, it benefits readers in so many ways, the readers in our classrooms. Um, and if they want stats, I read on your Heinemann Fellows profile that 
um, in your first year as a school librarian, circulations of books. And anyone who's a librarian knows that circulations are the most important thing in the world. <laughs> circulations yeah. of books increased by 14%. And as I tried to research some of the things that you've done to, you know, make that happen, get kids reading, in addition to what we're already talking about, I feel like a lot of what you do is rooted in working to know and really listen to your students. Yes, and also watch. Like, for example, when you do a survey of your students, I surveyed 300 of mine. I have 2,000. And over 70%, close to 80, 76% to be specific, said that they did not identify as readers. But then over 70%, close to 80, said that they felt reading the skill would be important for them in their life after school. Not after school like three o'clock, after school like graduation. And so we talked about that as a community. I said, you told me that you want to be readers, but you told me that you also don't identify as readers. So how can I support you? It's a dialogue between us. And then I also genrefied the library to make sure that students can find the books they need without having to go around and look for an author by last name because they don't always know. And to mess somebody up, to set somebody up for failure by having them forced to find books either through asking you, the adult, or through going through the library and searching up alphabetically, that disadvantages some and privileges others. So those are two things that I did that I think really helped. And in studying a lot of the work that you do, I, I think a lot of us can learn so much from the way you approach teaching students who speak more than one language. Um, I know that on the Rethinking Learning podcast, you mentioned that you were trilingual. You speak Portuguese, Spanish, and English, if I have it right. And yeah. I was really interested if you could shine the light for us on how speaking multiple languages informs the way you work with students? Well, I'm in a predominantly Black and Latinx student population. So it helps that I can code switch. It helps that I, Spanglish is comfortable for me. Um, it helps that students feel like they can speak their own languages to me and be understood. It breaks down that barrier because the library is already a place where the majority of the books are in English. I'm working to make sure that my population is, is better represented because I have not done the best job of having French language books, of having Chinese language books, of having, we, we got students who speak Chinese on campus. Um, we've also got students who, and to be specific, who speak Mandarin on campus. Yeah, and, and we've also got students who speak Tagalog. We've got students who speak um, tribal languages from West Africa. We've got French speaking students, Arabic, Amharic, and then we've got Marshallese students. So it's my job to make sure that if I don't speak that language, then what I can do is make sure that there's something enjoyable in the library for you. Some kids love the graphic novels that have no text at all. They love manga because there's a place for them. So I think the library should always be a place where people can find a home. And that's what I'm working to do digitally now that I can't be in my physical space. It seems like the root of it is, it's not about us. It's about 
the students that are in our room, that are in our care. Right. So let's wrap it up. Thank you so much. I know that you're so busy. Thank you so much for all the time and the amazing information that you've been able to provide for us, the thinking that you've been able to provide for us. So let's, just one last question. What are you working on right now? And where can teachers find more of your work? I'm working on a lot of things, um, but I would say I'll give you four categories. The, in, the virtual things that I'm doing the most are with NCTE, the National Council for Teachers of English. I'm finishing up my term as their representative at large. And through um, the Book Love Foundation, we raise money. I'm on the board and we raise money to fund classroom libraries for teachers. And this year we raised $86,000. So I do a lot of virtual stuff with the Book Love Foundation and NCTE. Um, and also through the Authors Village. That is where I collaborate with authors to do professional development. So those are virtual appearances. Writing, I am working on a lot of different columns and articles for various publications but you can find my work in School Library Connection and School Library Journal online and I believe in, in print. I'm awesome. working on the Disrupt textbook with the Disrupt Text ladies. So that hopefully will be out, if not next year, kind of towards the latter part of next year, beginning of the year after. So we're working on a book together um, to support everyone. And then the last is I have teaching guides that I periodically put out through Penguin Random House. So if you go to Penguin Random House, I don't think it's searchable by my name, but I have done them for um, Celia Perez's uh, First Rule of Punk and, um, sorry, Strange Birds. I'm definitely starting to wind down now. <laughs> um, so you can find teaching guides that I've written on the Penguin Random House um, for Education website. Julia, thank you so much. You're welcome, thank you so much. say every time I hear Julia Torres speak I feel like my IQ jumps a hundred points even if IQ is not like a really good test I feel like I get smarter um I had stopped recording but she wanted me Julia wanted me to make sure that everyone was aware that the edgy color virtual summit uh, registration has begun and I put a link to that in this episode's description um along with um, links to information, more information about Julia Torres and the work that she and her colleagues are doing with Disrupt Texts. I also want to make sure that everyone in our writing community knows that movingwriters.org has put out a call for new voices. Uh, the goal is to bring on more BIPOC writers and expand the focus to K-12 writing. For more information about this call for more writers, go to movingwriters.org. And last but not least, thank you, dear listener, for tuning in to Write Answers. <laughs> <laughs>